The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Article. Inspired by mid-century modern design and Scandinavian simplicity, Article is an online furniture company that offers beautiful furniture. Why online only? Because price matters. And when there are no retail stores, that means Article doesn't have to pay an expensive rent. And so they pass those savings on to you, the consumer. I have a beautiful lamp from Article, the Trio lamp. If you want to look it up on the Article website, article.com. The Trio lamp is this really beautiful piece of lighting with a tripod base, and uh, I love it. And I'm the proud owner of two Bamba Poofs and two Kala nightstands. I love the design. They're pretty sleek looking, and they are super functional. I got everything I need on my bedside. I've got two large drawers to keep all my stuff in. I love them. Western Weekly listeners, we know that you are people with discriminating tastes, and therefore we feel confident in recommending Article to you, because that's really what they're catering to, people with excellent taste. If you would like $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more, and why wouldn't you like that, go to article.com slash westwing. Your discount will be applied to your purchase. That's article.com slash westwing. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Blue Apron. Blue Apron is the leading meal kit delivery service in the entire United States. Some of you may not know about the types of meals you eat when you cook with Blue Apron. You're not just having regular old burgers for dinner. You're making short rib burgers with a hoppy cheddar sauce on a pretzel bun. We are big fans of Blue Apron over here. And not just us, the hosts of West Wing Weekly, parents are getting involved as well. Isn't that right, Josh? That's right. My folks are two new Blue Apron chefs. They've been doing Blue Apron now for a few weeks, and they love it. And every time they cook a meal, they send a picture of what they've made to my sisters and me because they're so proud of it. And it actually looks incredibly delicious. That's adorable. And they've been enjoying uh, yeah, making the meals together, which is pretty cute. Everything about that is cute. <laughs> Here's some of the meals that you could make if you had Blue Apron. Salmon and spicy orange salsa with quinoa and carrot salad. Or pork chorizo tacos with radishes, roasted potatoes, and cotija cheese. White cheddar cheeseburgers with balsamic glazed onion and roasted potatoes. Or creamy pesto cavatelli with mushrooms and spicy breadcrumbs. As my parents know, the ingredients are fresh and fantastic. The recipes are easy to follow and everything is ready for you. Someone else has done the sous chefing. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free at blueapron.com slash westwing. That's three meals for free when you go to blueapron.com slash westwing. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Live from Georgetown University, it's the West Wing Weekly. I'm Rishi K. Shirway. And I'm Joshua Molina. And today we're talking about the season premiere of season five. The episode is called 7AWF83429. Delighted to be here at Georgetown in a building named after my second favorite Disney character, <laughs> Gaston Hall. I don't know if there's an Elsa house, that would have been even better. Uh, I want to thank the woman who gave me this West Wing Weekly button, thank you, that you had made. I choose to view it not as intellectual property theft, <laughs> but as a tribute to the show. Thanks so much to Hannah for becoming my friend at the Correspondence Dinner Breakfast last year and making this whole thing possible. Thanks, Hannah. Yay. Okay, 7AWF83429. Written by John Wells, 
directed by Alex Graves, and it first aired on September 24th in the year 2003. We're post-Sorkin people. Oh, it's going to get real very quickly. Here's a little synopsis. The season five premiere picks up right where season four ended. It's been seven hours since Zoe Bartlett was kidnapped. Things are a little crazy because acting president Glenn Allen Walken is acting like the president. And it's making the senior staff nervous, even as they try and continue the business of the government. Meanwhile, the truth about Abdul Sharif's assassination finally comes out. The Bartlett's circle the wagons, but are rendered powerless as they wait for the news, while the combined forces of Leo Fitz, Nancy McNally, Special Agent Casper, and Acting President Walken try to sort out their military and law enforcement strategies against Kumar and the five terror suspects still at large, respectively. And to discuss this episode, we have a couple of very special guests, as you know. And Brad Whitford. Please welcome Ron Klain and Bradley Whitford. You'll hear it when it's released, but last episode that we recorded last night, we made Ron choose a code name, and he went with Papa Smurf. So if I refer to him that way, you'll understand why. Okay, before we get into this episode, a question for both of you, Josh and Brad. I was wondering if you could go back to this moment in 2003, the summer between seasons four and five, and what was it like for you knowing that Aaron wasn't coming back to the show? Were you nervous about how this season was going to go, maybe even specifically how this episode, first episode, was going to go? Yeah, uh, it, was, it was very weird and disorienting. I remember very clearly sitting in the Roosevelt Room when Tommy and Aaron called us in. I burst into tears. I remember thinking... This is what it would be like if I was a Branch Davidian and David Koresh left. <laughs> that is so romantic. Uh, no, but it was really disorienting. You really didn't know. I mean, apart from the incredible sort of personal connection you get with making stories with people and knowing that they were going to be gone, there was this particular brilliance of... Aaron finding his voice and being there when he found his voice. And you really, it was scary. You didn't know if it would go on. This episode was written by John Wells. How well did you know, know him and, and know his writing? I'll speak for Josh. Um, no, I'm comfortable with that. Okay. No, I, I want to say a couple of things about John. I think John is actually an uncelebrated hero of the entire enterprise of the West Wing because... John understood and had the humility to understand that you go in our business with talent. And he saw a really unique talent in Aaron and in the partnership Aaron had with Tommy. And John took all of his ER swing. It was a tremendously successful financial show. And he put a cone around us. And we, Aaron and Tommy and the cast, I never heard a network note, which is extraordinary. And he did an amazing thing. And then when this happened, I remember at the table read, John sat down and it was very weird to be at a table read of a script not written by Aaron and uh, John, I remember John said, I feel like Ethel Merman's understudy. Um, <laughs> we'll explain that to you young people yeah. later. 
not fans of 1940s musicals in here. <laughs> but John did a really menschy thing. He wasn't going to put any other writer out there, and we knew that we had to reinvent the making of the show. It's also worth noting, John Wells is a, uh, an excellent writer and very yeah, creative yeah, yeah. guy, uh, yeah. a great writer, and I think he knew he was stepping into something that had already been imprinted by Aaron's style and the way Aaron wrote. And I think re-watching this episode, which I hadn't uh, since it first aired, I think he did a very, very good job of continuing from where Aaron left off. Yeah, and it brings up all sorts of really fundamental questions that you're playing out in public. I mean, I remember, you know, it was hard to be on a, on a show where everyone was going, oh, it's, you know, this isn't going to be the same anymore. And what do you do? Do you try and imitate a voice that was so unique and do you create things that way? What are you laughing at? Well, you can't modify the word unique. Oh. It was in the West Wing. I mean, if Aaron taught us anything, it's that. But I understand the greater point and I accept it. <laughs> wow. I also think there was a bit of a dry run for things not being the way they were when Rob Lowe left and I came on the show. There's already a sense of, well, this isn't what it used to be. Yeah, yeah, the, <laughs> the ice was broken. I mean, it was heartbreaking because you really kind of could tell that Molina was there to stay. I remember when Aaron and Tommy let us know that they were in fact leaving. And I do remember there were a lot of tears and there was a very West Wingy taking of turns going around the table saying a little something and it was all very heartfelt and more than one person opined that perhaps the show shouldn't even continue in their absence and then it got to me I tried to work up tears but as usual it didn't quite come yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was holding for an insult but if you're not going to jump on it um, and I remember saying and Aaron's a good friend of mine so I didn't want to offend him especially after going after everyone else and I was like, I kind of just got here and I would like the show to continue. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, very sad, want to continue. Right. It was really moving. It and was. I think Aaron. <laughs> and did you have a sense of what the relationship was like between John Wells and, and Aaron? A little bit. I mean, I think they had a very good working relationship yeah. for four seasons. Look, there's a thing about Aaron that is really unique in television. Okay, I did it again. <laughs> we all know David Chase did The Sopranos, right? A lot of writers wrote on The Sopranos. With Aaron, it would be as if you came to me as an actor. His sort of like an actor's ownership and, or ego is the more pejorative word. It would be as if you came to me and said, you know, you've been great, Josh is really great, and we're just going to let John Slattery do it next week that would probably freak out an actor. And for Aaron, it was unimaginable. It, and it wasn't ego, it's just the only way he knows how to work. And I think John, you know, making a TV show is expensive, it's an unwieldy beast, and there were certainly kind of management artist issues, but John understood this was a unique talent that needed to be served. And so John Wells, before he started as the executive producer, one of the executive producers on The West Wing, as you mentioned, he was the showrunner for ER. Before that, he was a writer and then showrunner for a show called China Beach that won a ton of awards and yeah, mm -hmm. lots of Emmys. But I wanted to go back to the thing that you mentioned briefly, Brad. You said he didn't want to 
put any other writers out there with this episode? Could you expand on, on yeah, that idea? Well, that- well, he knew that everybody was watching. You know, you know that everybody's out there going, this isn't going to be as good. There's no way to win right. doing that. And John was like, I'll be out front. I don't know who wrote the second episode. But by the way, John works in a completely different way from the way Aaron and Tommy work. John is all about you know, a, a real sort of team mentality in the writer's room where you're alternating writers. I eventually went, went through the process with him. There is a system where uh, you bring in an outline, you get notes on the outline, you bring in another outline, you get to write a, a draft, you get notes from everybody. It's, it's a very, very collaborative thing. And of course, my joke with Aaron is, great show about democracy that you ran like you were Kim Jong-il. You know, <laughs> it, it, th- that was not the way this worked. And for someone like John, I think it's a, a remarkably astute thing to go, oh, this is different from the way I, who have a lot of power and could force things, I will get the best result if I let this horse run, which I, I, I think is an uh, under-acknowledged uh, contribution to the show. Aaron's leaving created an opportunity for you eventually to write a couple episodes. Yes. And to make me say horrible things. Which so we'll, oh, ha- yeah. we'll have you back when that time comes. Oh, truly my greatest achievement. We'll dig into it, yeah. yeah. Some of the directors who, who had come in under Tommy Shlami's, I guess, under the auspices of his supervision stayed. Chris Messiano and, and Alex Graves. Alex Graves directed this episode. Did that help feel like it was still a bridge from the Aaron years? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is a Catholic university, right? <laughs> uh, Oh, this is going to be good. No, no, no. The relationship with directors is very tricky for actors when you're under the gun. This show was a director killer. Everything about this show is hard. This is not a procedural, which creates all sorts of shooting problems. You never get in a rhythm. You know, in Law & Order, you know you're going to be at the courthouse this day. You know how to shoot those scenes. The emotional stuff in this was hard. The acting was hard. The, you know, the verbiage was hard. So it was hard to find someone. And very quickly, you wanted to have, you know, Chris and Alex, people who you, you knew, you know, knew what was going on. I, I didn't say the dirty story. No, no, no. It's just an old thing. Mike Nichols used to say that directing is like sex because you never... You have never, <laughs> you've never seen any, in general, you've ne- I don't believe Mike Nichols said this. <laughs> in general, you've never seen, experienced anyone else performing your specific job. There was a sense of continuity and that was intentional because we were a bunch of, you know, freaking out babies. I, I, did that help at all in terms of this episode? Because... So much of the plot involves the staff being freaked out by this change in leadership and really feeling disoriented. I mean, it, it, in a lot of ways, what we're seeing with a new person at the, you know, in the leadership role yeah, is a mirror. Yeah, it, it's a great... I remember thinking about this. You know, you're always looking for ways to judo the atmospherics of I am of production into what is actually going on. And there were many opportunities for that 
playing, it was wonderful playing a White House character because I had young kids, I was exhausted, I was over-caffeinated, and I'm like, okay, good, I, you know, I don't have to act that, which is very similar to being in the White House. And looking at this, it was like, yeah, what are you people doing here? This, all those feelings of sort of oddness and alienation were there. I also think this episode, like the two that preceded the final two episodes of season four, Aaron was writing in a sort of uh, anomalous fashion. Right. So that maybe the transition was smoothed over in the sense that John Wells didn't have to create the perfect Sorkin episode, that the whole White House is in tumult and there's chaos and there's more personal story than usual. And in a way, the first downbeat of season five starts in equally anomalous fashion. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of, uh, there was a parallel version of what was happening plot-wise that was happening in the creation of the show that made it, I guess, easier. Yeah, and I think what you're saying, Josh, I agree with, too, that part of why the transition here... So I haven't seen this episode. I actually watched it for the very first time in preparation for this conversation. Wow. Um, Here's where the rubber hits the road. This is where we discover that Rishi... You stopped? Is an Aaron Sorkin fan much more than he's a West Wing fan. He is a West Wing fan, but we, I consider him the ultimate wing nut. He's the ultimate Sorkin nut, right? So the first time I watched this, I got as far as the teaser, I think. I got to the <laughs> titles. And, uh, and it what does ju- that mean? You put the DVD in and then you left? Um, <laughs> I got to the teaser. No, it was like on TV. I watched it and it just felt too weird and, and it just didn't, it didn't seem right. I felt, interesting. I mean, I think partly I was braced for it to feel very different. I was, I had some bias going into it. You know, it wasn't going to be Aaron Sorkin and that was the real reason why I loved the show. And so, you know, it wasn't going to be the same. And then, and I think it's actually not really just about Aaron's writing, really the direction here, especially at the beginning, Alex Graves starts off this episode also so different from any other West Wing episodes. There's, you know, this grainy footage, there's this cacophonous montage of of news reels and overlapping voices and these whip pan transitions, these things that we don't see on the show. And so I kind of ascribed that a little bit to Aaron leaving, not at the time, especially not really knowing how all the mechanics of TV making worked or, or of this show specifically, it just didn't feel like the TV show that I knew and loved. And, uh, and then people were talking and I checked out. So I, I think I was, I was really... Uh, Did you never watch any of the other episodes? Um, pretty much no. You know what? Wow. wow. I know. I, I, it's dawning on you as it's dawning on me. The podcast is moving into a new era where I'm the expert on the show. Yeah. <laughs> this can't be good for anyone. I've seen at least all the episodes once, or most of them. But so, I've been pretty worried about this moment since we started wow. the podcast. Wow. Um, when, did, when was this revealed to you? Josh knew the whole time. Yeah, I, I'm just pretending I'm finding out now. Um, yeah. Even a while back, Rishi pitched me on, maybe I should continue the podcast with another host. I was like, of course. I was like, dude. Well, I thought, you know, part of the dynamic is... Josh was on the show, and I'm somebody who's watched the show many, many, many times. So when we get to episodes that I haven't seen many, many times, to continue the dynamic, we should do a switch as well. And I could still help produce and stuff, but I wouldn't be the host. I would have none of it. So here we are. 
Um, but, <laughs> but so I think it's actually going to be interesting moving forward and discovering what you think of the later seasons. And I'm curious, just in a, you know, we're going to get into the micro. Overall, this is a good episode of The West Wing, well, so th- I think. So now, having watched it, I was expecting it to be jarred. When I first saw it, I don't think I had, I don't think the season four DVD was out yet. So I hadn't, I couldn't binge watch and go from season four right into season five the way that I, I could just in the last few days. And seeing how, as you said, anomalous the last couple of episodes were for Aaron and then going to this one, they're so plot heavy. The last couple episodes of season four, last three, really. And so it doesn't feel like the West Wing a little bit. The, there, there's a camouflage of, of plot. Exactly, yeah. And they're able to keep that camouflage going here. And so as I watched it, it didn't really feel that different, especially at a macroscopic level. It didn't feel that different from the end of season four. And so I, in the end, I, was, I found myself kind of mirroring what some of the characters were saying. Like when all the characters are remarking on Walken, looking at him and saying, gosh, he seems presidential and feeling a little surprised and a little unsettled by it. That's kind of how I felt watching this episode. I felt this does seem more akin to what I had just watched, you know, these episodes that Aaron had written than I expected it to be. I have to say, I got into a thing where I just didn't watch large percentages of the episodes from before this and because of this I watched the second to last one and then I watched this and I have to say I I was kind of surprised and I didn't know if it was the camouflage of of the plot one thing I can tell you that I don't think is going to offend anybody is that John Wells in retrospect felt like initially and I don't know how long he felt it, but that there was an inevitable awkward transition going from what John said was an attempt to imitate Aaron to realizing it will be much better if we find a, our own post-Aaron voice. And the show changed in ways that I think are more recognizable down the way. Right. And even though that may be the way he articulated the experience of taking over, I watched it, I felt like a detective looking for exactly that. And I feel like this episode doesn't play like an Aaron Sorkin tribute band. No, it, I mean, but I think because the last couple of episodes that Aaron Sorkin wrote didn't feel like Aaron Sorkin either. There's a, yeah, this transition. There's more wiggle room. Yeah, exactly. There were a couple things here and there that I felt didn't sit quite right. There's a moment with CJ and Carol. How do I look? Like you slept in your clothes. And then the moment's over. And I feel like with Aaron, you know, I would have expected a, a last line. CJ usually gets the last word. She gets to have some, you know, either whether it's self-deprecating or, or some kind of sharp remark back at Carol. There's some third layer to that that never happens. Um, I could tell you a weird, I felt a weird thing. I don't know how it works in a, in a brain. And I think as an actor in an Aaron Sorkin show, you end up with a weird little muscle, which after the second stroke, I'll be in the nursing home spouting policy. Because um, it's up there somewhere. But I had real trouble memorizing. I remember... Your lines in this episode? Uh, no, just during the transition as different writers would come in. And then the longer I've been able uh, to act, I realized that it's a pretty good indication if the thoughts are flowing for the character. If the easier it goes in, generally the better the writing it is. Mm, Interesting. There's another little thing. A couple times in this episode, they say they're sending out a bolo. And that kind of, you know, 
yeah, specific well, jargon is yeah. certainly that was something that Aaron would use a lot, but there would always be some moment, some aside, even if it was quick, where someone would explain what that term meant. Bolo means yeah. beyond the lookout. And, oh, right. um, and we never actually... I was like, why is he talking about Southern ties? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So there, there were little things, but in general, I was surprised by how undistracted I was by the... Uh, yeah, except, writing. you know, Roseanne's husband is president in this episode. <laughs> that seems highly problematic in many ways. <laughs> it's good casting, John Goodman. Yeah, let me play this one part that I, 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 I love. love him. You look small, funny. It's hard to hear with all the montage, but it's Josh looking at the president at the press conference behind John Goodman, and he says he looks small, and, and he really does. Yeah, it's very well framed. The exact thought went through my mind before I heard Josh say the exact line that went through my mind, and I thought Alex did a very good job. It's Again, it's like screen within a screen, but it's very well framed where the hulking mass that is John Goodman is making uh, little Martin Sheen look rather slight. I also wanted to throw out Clip three, in defense of John Wells' writing also in the idiom of Aaron Sorkin, but I think uh, very successfully, there's this little bit. They're just laying off because the president's daughter is probably tied up in the back of a gas station. We have no idea how this is planned. He showed he's a leader, nobly embracing his own flawed humanity. Lincoln and Kennedy had children who died. They didn't take a sabbatical. Lincoln never got a ransom note from Jefferson Davis. He's putting country before family. I'd carpet bomb Mecca to get my kids back. That's Toby. That's very Toby Ziegler, and I think that's the kind of dialogue Aaron might put in his mouth. Yeah, the carpet bomb Mecca reminded me of uh, when he's fighting with Andy and, and says, I don't remember having to explain to Italians that our problem wasn't with them, but with Mussolini. Why does the U.S. have to take every Arab country out for an ice cream cone? They'll like us when we win. I'm worried about you. What, what is this going to be like for you? <laughs> Do you feel like you're betraying Aaron when you're watching this? <laughs> I don't know. Do you feel that way? Did you feel at all like you were betraying Aaron by continuing on with the show? Well, well played. <laughs> <laughs> you got to back off. No, um, <laughs> I mean, the fact is, yeah, Tommy, no, no, no. It, 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 was, it was very, very weird at, at, at first. And I don't remember when I first communicated, you know, saw Aaron after that, but I saw him a bunch and I, you know, and it's like, he would say, how's it going? You know, and you'd be like, you know, you know, where, you know, you know, it's good. You, you wanted to be, you know, I know for him, he, I think he said he tried to watch and felt like watching his wife sleep with someone else. Yes. Or he, he claims like essentially not to have ever watched the show again. Right. I felt, I remember feeling like I still had a job. <laughs> yeah. You remember that? Yeah. Also feels like last month. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the nice things that adds to the chaos here, in addition to the chaos of what's happening outside of the White House with the FBI and uh, the military trying to figure out what they're going to do, is the internal chaos of the president's staff. They're still in their offices, and they're still trying to perform their actions, but they're doing it for someone they've never worked for. In fact, someone who they've probably worked very hard against many times. At one point, Will says he's preparing remarks for President Walken. And I remember, you know, earlier when Will first gets the job, he, he gets all of these reams of speeches from President Bartlett to try and learn his voice and, you know, figure out whatever his speech patterns might be. He doesn't have any kind of luxury here where he's going to do that. He's got a new 
boss temporarily. It's really disorienting. It's like you're doing a podcast about a show where you're not in love with the writer anymore. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> oh, Ron, I'm curious about Walken comes in. He's got staffers yeah. and he's got his own people. But there's sort of a tension between the two staffs. Yeah, I mean, obviously, what's interesting about the West Wing is so much of it's based on, you know, kind of true things that actually happened, particularly in the Clinton administration, a little bit in the Bush administration. This episode presents something that we've never seen in American history, which is, you know, the president stepping aside and his political opponent, not, not the vice president replacing him. There is no vice president at this stage in the series. His political opponent, the Speaker of the House, comes in. So this is something we've just never seen in American history, how this would happen, how a Democratic president steps aside, Republican speaker becomes president, he brings his people in, the president's staff is still there, Leo is trying to serve as both chief of staff to kind of the presidency, and, and one scene kind of says to Bartlett, you know, I can't tell you something because that's something that the president told me. And I think the episode captures the confusion and the difficult issues of loyalty that the staff face uh, in this scenario. I mean, even inside a totally friendly White House with a president and a vice president who run together, who are a team, so on and so forth. When staff shifts from one principal to the other, there's often these moments of disorientation. Eli Addy, who played such a large role in the show, started off writing speeches for Bill Clinton, eventually became Al Gore's chief speechwriter, had to really understand the difference between working for these two men and so on and so forth. So what you see here is what you would expect to see if all of a sudden this completely hostile political person comes into the White House and is running the place uh, with staff that don't fit him and his staff in conflict. And it's, it's, I think it portrays this unknown really well. Ron, in your own experience, you were a senior advisor to President Clinton, and then you ended up becoming the chief of staff to Al Gore. Can you talk about that transition? Was that jarring for you when you, when you made that switch? Yeah, I mean, it worked well on the way in, and all worked perfectly well until we got to 1999, when uh, the Gore campaign was going along, not doing that well early on, and there was some tension between the president and the vice president, and there was a feeling that like the Clinton people weren't quite loyal enough, and I got fired. You know, so like uh, that's got a very unhappy ending, doesn't it? Now you got fired because you were seen as a leftover from uh, the, yeah, a little Clinton. too close to Clinton, a little too close to Clinton's people, and so I kind of got pushed out. So that's we, we've now like gone into a very sad part of my life. So but eventually coming back. And wow. then, yes, oh, yes, thank you, Josh. I appreciate Come that. On. Yes, yes, another and then, chapter. And then, and then a year later, like the people who fired me got fired, and I got yes. brought back and uh, came back for the end. So, yeah, and, then, and, then, and then we won the popular vote and we lost in Florida. Ooh, so, yeah, sad. so it got sad again. Yeah, yeah so it's that's, that's like the season nine cliffhanger. So, huh. there you go. But luckily, no president who won the popular vote ever didn't become president after that. Never happened. Never happened. Well, here's another question I had. <laughs> Watching the subplot develop in this episode of Walken announcing his intention to consider nominating a VP, how quickly could that possibly be done? Might Bartlett have put a VP in place so that rather than transferring the reins of power, as it were, to an adversary, he could have had his uh, man or woman in yeah, charge? So we've only replaced the 25th Amendment, which allows the vice president to be replaced, only was ratified to the Constitution in 1967. First 180 years of our country, if the vice president died or quit, or if the president died and the vice president became president, we just had no vice president at all. So first 180 years of our country, 38 years, no vice president. 
So, you know, that tells you something about the job, I suppose. And when Johnson, when, when and then, Kennedy and the was assassinated, and Yeah, Johnson... and then they decided after Kennedy was assassinated to try to change the Constitution. They added the 25th Amendment in 1967. So we've only had two vice presidents made under the 25th Amendment. Gerald Ford, when Spiro Agnew resigned in 1973, and then Nelson Rockefeller, uh, when Ford became president in 1974. And in both those times, it took months to finish the process of picking a vice president. The, the vice president has to be confirmed by both the Senate and the House. It took two months when Ford became vice president, four months when Rockefeller became vice president. So this is not something that's going to happen uh, very quickly. I think that the Ford presidency, as you said, there's no precedent here for anything in history, but I thought the closest equivalent to what we could look at was the Ford presidency, because that was someone who became president having never run on a presidential ticket. And in terms of a sudden abrupt change, you know, LBJ, of course, or with an assassination, it's a little bit different. They, they were on the ticket together. But here's Gerald Ford, who comes out from having ascended from uh, being nominated. And then, suddenly, you know, he just kind of, in some ways, accidentally became the president. Yeah. And in his case, he had a staff before he became president. And there was a, a period where the two mingled. He kept President Nixon's chief of staff on for six weeks. You know, every president and vice president make these kinds of contingency plans for how a transition would go if there was a, a longer transition. And indeed, as you say, Alexander Haig, who had been Nixon's chief of staff, remained. Ultimately, Ford made Dick Cheney his chief of staff. So fill in the blank there. And, um, and Donald Rumsfeld in between, right? And Donald Rumsfeld in between, yes. And you know, I think that kind of handover is, is what you see here. Again, with the added complexity that these are people from different political parties and there's a lot of anxiety. And throughout the episode, Josh is very nervous about the politics of this. What I love about this episode is it really captures that inevitable aspect of the White House, that even at a time of tragedy and Zoe being missing and, and uh, you know, potential uh, missile strikes and... Uh, uh, the Middle East, and all these things, Josh has to ask the question, like, what are the politics of this? What if the country falls in love with Roseanne's husband as president? <laughs> like, where, where do we go from there? And, I, you know, I think it's just such a great, powerful portrayal of what it's like to be in the middle of something like that. Yeah, here's that clip. What if they like walking better? What if he seems more presidential? What if they want walking to stay? In a few days, President Bartlett turns the second letter over to Congress. What if it doesn't take a few days? What if it takes a few weeks or a few months? What if she's never found? So there's all this precedent for the intermingling of, of staffs in a moment of chaos like this. But the one part that just didn't feel right to me was the idea that, that Will would prepare his remarks. Because again, going back to Gerald Ford, you know, when he gave the speech after becoming so quickly inaugurated, he still had his speechwriter write that speech, which included this famous line. My fellow Americans, our long national nightmare is over. And you can't imagine a Nixonian aide calling what had preceded it a, a national nightmare. So you'd think that Walken would also want to have his people doing things. Yeah, and it, it ultimately, obviously, in the episode, that's kind of what happened, which is he goes in the press room. No one's seen, even CJ hasn't seen what he's about to say in the press room. And you see, like, literally every minute in this episode, Walken kind of assumes more and more power as president, is pushing the Bartlett people away, is pushing Bartlett away himself, ultimately makes a horrendous decision that could really impact the Bartlett family and the whole thing. You just see he's becoming more and more president every single minute. Yeah, let's, let's talk about the decisions that he has to make. 
I think the, the West Wing in general has given some really memorable titles. He shot from time to time, post hoc, ergo propter hoc. I mean, there are so many, and I don't know if this is just because of my love of Aaron's writing or something, but I do feel like there's so You're going to knock John Wells for the title? <laughs> no, I think it's actually a great... This one is not memorable, but I think it actually serves the episode well. It's so hard. You know, I have to... Even when we were doing the intro to this episode, I had to keep looking at my notes to remember what the uh, order of digits and, and numbers were. Uh, I think it, it works really well because the title here is just this anonymous set of figures. And when the president articulates that, I think it, it really helps underscore that, that feeling of horror. He says... They gave her a number, Leo. I saw it on CNN. My little girl's a case number now. Five digits. And so this person who he loves, this three-dimensional person, flesh and blood of his, is now reduced to this case file. And he's horror-struck by that, but it's also in that kind of context that I think everybody who's in the situation room is examining what they have to do. So I actually think it's a good choice for the title. Yeah, I agree. I, I watched this episode as a dad, and it's pretty... Gut-wrenching. Yeah. I do think the question Josh raises early in the episode, and that exchange also you played with Toby, whether or not Bartlett was right to step aside as president, given the fact that other presidents have endured tragedies, other presidents have had to make hard choices. Think about all the hard choices Bartlett has made along the four seasons before this. You know, I think is a really interesting question. Presidents are reluctant to turn over power, even briefly. So we've had the 25th Amendment for a long time. President Reagan was the first person to invoke it. Even when he did, he refused to actually say he was invoking the 25th Amendment to turn over power. He, he sent these ambiguous instructions. The two times that President Bush did, he turned over power to Dick Cheney for two hours each time when he had a medical procedure and they didn't really uh, try to keep it quiet till after it was over. So, you know, the president Turning his power over to somebody else is a huge choice, and it does feel like it's a little precipitously made, and it's no surprise that the staff is still struggling with that as they're seeing the consequences of that play out in this episode. When Reagan was shot, we also we had a, yeah. an Alexander Haig crazy chaotic succession moment. Yeah, so when Reagan was shot up the street here, not too far here, and brought then to GW Hospital, down the corner the other way. When Reagan was shot, he couldn't turn over power voluntarily because he was unconscious. So he couldn't invoke Section 3 of the 25th Amendment to give power to Vice President Bush because he was unconscious. So the choice really fell to Bush to take power under Section 4, to declare that Reagan was incapable of governing, and Bush didn't do it. He refused to invoke Section 4 of the 25th Amendment. And so for a while, we really didn't have a president until President Reagan kind of came back to consciousness and uh, resumed whatever governing he did from his uh, hospital bed. But somewhere in there, didn't Alexander Haig? Yes, and Alexander Haig, the, the, the Secretary of State, showed up in the White House briefing room because uh, uh, Vice President Bush was actually in Texas at the time when this happened. And he said, look, the Vice President's on a plane, and so uh, I'm in charge here. It was a very famous thing that Alexander Haig said that was wrong in every conceivable way, right? So, like, w one... Uh, he was not in charge in any way, shape, or form. Two, under the Presidential Succession Act, if for some reason the president or the vice president are both unavailable, as we see in this episode, the speaker becomes president, not the secretary of state. Secretary of state is number five in uh, succession. So In the West Wing, this is where Will would have walked out and said, sir, actually. Uh, yeah. I assure you in the real West Wing, someone definitely did. And, I suspect uh, so. Yeah, yeah. I think Josh is worried that this is going to be perceived as a wussy, responsible, yeah. democratic 
you know, I'll do the right thing, not macho enough move by the president to responsibly take himself out. Yeah, and I mean, you see this great exchange between Leo and the Democratic leadership in the Roosevelt Room where they all come in and say, hey, we're really sorry about Zoe, but you guys have branded the Democrats on, as weak on national defense. When there's a national crisis, Bartlett has stepped aside. You've put the Republicans in charge. You're really going to wreck us politically. And, you know, and I, th I think that captures that sense that Josh has, that this is political problems for the Bartlett administration, and, the, and all the Democrats in Congress ag agree with that and really take Leo to the woodshed. There's a line that I was fascinated by in that exchange with the Democratic leadership where one of them says, You've single-handedly ended the imperial presidency. You've elevated Walker. And I'd always thought of the imperial presidency as being a pejorative term, but here they're taking Leo to task for it. Yeah, I mean, I think in general you see their anxiety that Bartlett looks weak. He looks weak. And you never, if, you, if you're a member of a party, you do not want to see your president look weak. You might see your president look a little crazy, but you do not want to see your president uh, look weak. Yeah, and, and he's basically, it's going to be perceived as I am too upset to do this now, which is uh, not a way you want the president and, to I mean, be And Toby raises the great point. I mean, as at that moment, they don't know when they're going to find Zoe alive or dead. How, how long will Bartlett step aside? Weeks, months? You know, like, what, what point in time does he, you know, lose control of this altogether? One of my favorite parts of this episode is seeing the sort of moral dilemma that Leo has to go through. As someone who's known Zoe for so long, they clearly also have a relationship that's not so unlike father-daughter. And he's the one in the situation room who you can see he kind, of, he kind of argues for her humanity outside of this file number. I'm going to play a couple of clips here. If we bomb the camps, don't the kidnappers murder Zoe Bartlett? Or it sends a message. Kill her or don't, the United States does not negotiate with terrorists. We bomb Kumar and they kill her. They're going to kill her anyway. When do you want to go, Admiral? Like everyone else is all business, and he's supposed to be the one who, you know, is a little bit more pragmatic. He, as we mentioned, he uh, cuts off the president from knowing information that he's not supposed to know, but he's torn in the situation room trying to still see this person is worth saving versus, you know, these decisions. I mean, someone like Fitz Wallace, who has to send people in uniform in harm's way all the time and can't, you know, can't be blocked by those kinds of attachments. I like the tension also between McNally and Fitz Wallace in this episode and I think in the previous episode where yeah. we're getting sort of a, a back and forth and a, a more hawkish take from Fitz Wallace and less so from... McNally. Yeah, I thought that was actually an interesting reversal because there have been times when I felt like Nancy has been the, the more hawkish one of the two, but here she's presented as like the voice of caution. She says this. This is a long-term ally in a highly volatile region. Bombing Tripoli stopped Libya. It's more likely to strengthen the resolve of the terrorists and topple a moderate Islamic regime. But back in 20 Hours in America, the second part of it in, in season four, when talking about Kumar, this dynamic, they were still kind of butted heads, she and uh, Fitz Wallace, but it was reversed. This is, this is how she was there. Let's attack. Who? Kumar, let's recommend to the president that we attack. Why? Because I've had it. I don't think the UN is going to let us do it for that reason. That's because you're a sissy. You want peace in the Middle East? Give me a pair of third generation ICBMs and a compass. Yeah, her thinking has developed. <laughs> <laughs> Good call. 
then there's a, there's a moment when a phone call comes to the residents. This is on a separate topic now, but there's a moment when a phone call comes to the residents and the president and the first lady are there and the first lady answers. I, I really liked this part as well, where she, she gets up and she answers and, and the president says that people have been calling, but what ends up happening is that the first lady ends up doing the consoling Right. Um, instead of being consoled. And it gives me an opportunity to shout out this article that I read a few years ago that I really think was useful for me. It was in the LA Times and it was called How Not to Say the Wrong Thing. And it was, about, it was written by uh, a couple of authors, one of whom had, had gone through cancer. And they came up with something called ring theory. And I really like this. I'm just going to read a little bit from the article. They say, draw a ring. This is the center ring. In it, put the name of the person at the center of the current trauma. Now draw a larger circle around the first one, and in that ring, put the name of the person next closest to the trauma. Repeat the process as many times as you need to. In each larger ring, put the next closest people, parents and children before more distant relatives, intimate friends in smaller rings, less intimate friends in larger ones. When you're done, you have a kvetching order. Here are the rules. The person in the center can say anything she wants to anyone, anywhere. She can fetch and complain and whine and moan and curse the heavens and say, life's unfair and why me? That's the one payoff for being the center ring. And everyone else can say those things too, but only to people in the larger rings. The rule is comfort in, dump out. Yeah, that's good. And whoever's calling the first lady has not read this article. (laughs) And now we're going to take a quick break. Hey, if you haven't yet, you should definitely check out Rishi's other podcast, Song Exploder. The New York Times recently had this to say about Song Exploder. In the world of beautifully produced podcasts, Song Exploder is the beacon. Short version, it's a show that dissects a song. Long version, it's a show filled with serious lines of honesty, cinematic production, and peaks inside the creative process. So be sure to check out Song Exploder. I listen to it all the time, and I love it. You can find all the fabulous episodes at songexploder.net or pretty much anywhere else you find your podcasts. Check it out. And now, back to the show. I think it's that exact moment, and I think we have the clip, that we start to get the first sense that I, I don't think we've known previously that explicitly that the president has not shared with Abby about the Sharif assassination. And so it's only that we get that added resonance in this episode that percolating underneath his lack of having communicated with her is maybe the sense that his decision has led in a way to what's happened to Zoe. And I think there's a very nice economy in the acting and in the writing from John Wells in, in this moment. Danny Kincannon is going to run the Sharif story. What? The Sharif story, Danny's running it. Asked if we wanted to comment. No. No comment. And during that long pause, he looks over his shoulder. He sees Abby on the phone. And just in the silence, we get that first sense that this is a big issue. I like how it's handled, like how it's directed and how it's acting. And ultimately, that is how it's interpreted. I mean, the first lady really seems like she blames the president's decision to assassinate Sharif. She draws a direct link between the assassination and the kidnapping, and she puts it squarely on the uh, feet of the president, which I, I think is both understandable and unfair. I agree. I absolutely do agree. 
And now he's in a situation where, as president, he made decisions that may or may not have affected him personally. And now he's removed himself from being able to make further decisions that might affect the personal situation. Yeah, I mean, it's, this episode really gives you the sense of the loneliness of the presidency. And even when Bartlett is not even acting as president, he gets lonelier. I mean, it's, it's odd, right? Because these people are all there to console him and comfort him. But you see, as the episode goes on, he's kind of more and more just sitting by himself, sitting alone, kind of isolated from everyone. And I think both on the personal level and on the governmental level. So he has this divide with his wife over whether or not his actions caused the disappearance and potential death of their daughter. And then there's that scene where Leo comes in and he and Leo ruminate about all the things they wanted to do, all the plans they had for his presidency that may have gone off the rails because of this incident. And so you just, you know, just see in Bartlett this sense, you know, the, to me, the episode reminds me of that famous picture of President Kennedy in the Oval Office, looking out of the window, standing there alone, just kind of the isolation of power, the isolation of the kind of decisions presidents have to make. And, you know, that just really comes through here. At the end of this episode, Bartlett may have lost his daughter, lost his wife, and lost his presidency. That's a pretty lonely place to be. I do like that when he decides to be alone, he's like, I'm going to go stand by that incredibly picturesque window <laughs> that is so beautifully lit. <laughs> That's Alex. The one person who seems to have loyalty outside of the office of the president is Charlie. You can see that contrast between him and, as you said, Leo has this allegiance to the actual office instead. And it is contrasted by the, just the throng of people that surround Walken. And there's that great scene when you finally have both staffs intermingled in the Oval Office. And we meet, for the first time, Steve Atwood, who's, he kind of seems like evil Josh Lyman. To me, Josh Lyman is evil Josh Lyman. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a perspective thing. Uh, Steve played by Jelko Ivana. Yeah, who's a wonderful, wonderful actor. When I was a kid, my family was very hip. Instead of playing Marco Polo in the pool, we play Jelko Ivana. Jelko Ivana. Oh, really? Yeah. Did you see Cloud Nine in New York? I remember no, seeing him in that. I first saw him in Neil Simon's Brighton Beach Memoirs. Oh, with Stanley, wow. 1983, I believe. Oh, wow. And I most recently saw him in Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Yes, he's and a great he was actor. fantastic. Great character actor. One yeah. of those guys who's in a million things and is yes. always great. Damages. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the other things that makes the scene unsettling is we also meet Walken's pug, Bess, <laughs> who's a creepy dog. Oh, I love that dog. That dog was annoying. She's no Watson. Who is? That's <laughs> well, Watson. Uh, <laughs> it is a pretty aggressive choice in the middle of the crisis. I know Bo probably went into the Oval Office, but probably not during the tense times. Yeah, you know, presidential pets tend to have run of the place, I will say. But acting presidential pets, I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> yeah. So I think, I think like, uh, he should have been there for like a day or two before he brought the pug into the Oval into Office. That's kind of my... My view. And I think this scene also gives maybe the, I don't know if creepy is the right word, but certainly one of the strangest moments, I think both for us as viewers, and you, you see it register a little bit with the people in the room too, or with the Bartlett people in the room at least. This moment when we, we hear Walken, who is acting presidential, turn to Leo. I'm sorry, Leo, what's next? Ooh. He takes, you know, President Bartlett's line even, and that's when it starts to really feel like, Maybe this is going too far. This is not just... Um, Maybe that was John Wells going, okay. <laughs> Here we go. Here's yes. my territory. This is mine. 
watching this, Tim Busfield is wonderful in this. Uh, whenever I see Tim, I am reminded that people always say, how did you get to be in the West Wing? And it's because I was in Revenge of the Nerds 2, Nerds in Paradise. With, you're welcome. I dug deep. It's a good movie. Did you watch it? Of course. Okay. Um, and that's where I met Tim. And then Tim went into A Few Good Men, and then Tim introduced me to Aaron. Danny Kincaid in, in this episode, maybe more so than other episodes, I, I don't think I've had this thought before, but here, something about the way he's dressed with sleeves rolled up and the, and the shirt that he's wearing, um, and just his manner, the way that he's acting with CJ, he re reminds me like a flash-forward version of another Sorkin character. He reminds me of Jim Gallagher Jr. in, in the newsroom, Jim Harper. You can almost see how the two correspond, especially here. It almost feels like they're playing the same character at different ages. Did you watch all the episodes of that show? Good. Yeah. It's a good question. For those listeners at home, the answer is no. <laughs> Josh, good work on Will's bedhead hair in this episode. Thank you. Yes, I get the ultimate ignominy, which is to have my hair criticized by Brad. <laughs> we also get the uh, introduction. We finally meet the eldest Bartlett daughter, and she's played by Annabeth Gish. This is the first time? This is the first time. Oh, I didn't even realize that. And you, you've acted with her more recently in Scandal, right? Indeed, that is true. I like that entire scene. That's, that's the family. They're making lunch. There's just undercurrents of incredible familial tension. What is the tension. deal with the... Ex I'm sorry, did I jump in? No, did please I hurt do. You? Okay. You're a guest. Um, what is the deal with that exterior? I, I, I don't recognize that. When the daughters arrive? When, when they arrive at the West Wing, I don't recognize the set. They have... It almost looked like they stole a shot from the real yeah, West Wing, but it's, but it's There's a California more... sun, so they faked something. I like in that scene when uh, the son-in-law shows up, who's just useless. Doug. Yeah. Yeah, he's Doug. Just yeah there's, and useless. there's a little awkwardness there, yeah, too. Exactly. He doesn't do a great job of consoling. Just There's something just in there, the way they greet each other, the president and Doug. Yeah. He's just yeah. a, he's awkward and, and kind of a lump. And, and we'll return to Doug in future Yes, we episodes. will. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah? You're going to love it. <laughs> so far, I'm not a fan. But it felt realistic as a sometime son-in-law who's sitting there awkwardly and uselessly. Yeah, and in a horrifying situation, one of those, what do you say? And uh, there really is nothing to say, and it's also why I like that, at that that scene ends with an extended hug. Ellie and uh, President Bartlett. Yeah. It's a very sweet just picture, and it's long. The, the moment is given the time it needs. It's lovely. Yeah, and it's nice. It's nice continuity from when we first met Ellie, and you know the sort of awkward relationship that they have. The intimacy it doesn't always feel natural between the two of them until the end end of that episode of Ellie. Um, so to see them kind of connecting here in a more natural way, and then later when she when she comforts him, Nina Shamashko. Nina so Shamashko. Yeah, there are some things in this episode I haven't figured out how I feel about them, where there are these echoes of from things in past episodes. And certainly Aaron Sorkin repeated himself all the time, you know, between within the West Wing and then, you know, callbacks, things that he'd written for other episodes. But there are a few specific ones. In this episode, they say, don't call it a recession. You get the great line about... Um, so if it is a bagel, the Fed thinks it's going to be a mild bagel. But Leo had said that as well. We'd heard Leo tell Margaret, don't, you know, make sure not to call it a recession. And then there are some other echoes like... 
I don't know if you remember, Andrew McIntosh, the IT guy, came when he talks to Charlie, he says, if they're shooting at you, my father used to always say, if they're shooting at you, you know you're doing something right. And Walken here kind of has a version of it where he says, well, if the Arabs are mad at us, we must be doing something right. Dr. McNally. And then, you know, Sam had asked in, he had asked Toby why write two speeches for election night. And he said, oh, I wrote one, you know, he said, you wrote two speeches? So, yeah, of course, you, you know, you write one if he wins and one if... If he doesn't, because you don't want to tempt the wrath of the whatever from high atop the thing. And then here, in a much more like morbid, scary version of it, Toby has to write two speeches, one if Zoe's found alive and one if she isn't. And in some ways, it feels like these place you back in this universe you know, that was established four seasons ago. And in some ways, knowing that Aaron didn't write it, like the knowledge of the authorship changes how I interpret the lines. But for normal viewers, <laughs> I think it probably worked. So, so if Aaron does it, it's callback. If John does it, it's a uh, heist. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's effective and works, makes you feel like you're, I don't know. Did anybody else feel this way? Did no, you feel? No, nobody, nobody. <laughs> I can answer for the room. <laughs> um, the episode ends with a song by uh, Lisa Gerard, who was in um, the band Dead Can Dance. And it's this really haunting song here. It's called Sanveen, I'm Your Shadow. It's this part that plays uh, under the, the song that plays over the final montage. And it's a really interesting song because uh, like some of Lisa Gerard's songs, it has vocals, but they're not in any language. It's, uh, it's called a glossolia, where it's a, just a made up language. So only she can sing this song. <laughs> Uh, because no one else knows the words because there are no real words. Like the singer from Sigaros does the same thing. And, um, and I thought it's both a really beautiful choice for the, for the actual scene that plays out, but I, I couldn't help but think about, you know, this show that for so long chugged along on its verbosity and the, and the use of language that in this, you know, transitional episode, it ends with a song that has no words. He's good. Yeah, he's good. <laughs> Ooh. He's good. So are you saying that uh, John was aware of that? <laughs> or are you saying it is an example of the atrocity he A committed? troublemaker. <laughs> but if it's aimed at you, I'm just going to step out of the way. No, I think, I, actually, I'm sure that music was chosen by Alex. That's not a John choice, I don't think. Well, I thought it worked really well. Thank God we've never really gone through, I, I keep thinking about just as a dad, we, I even hate to say it out loud, a, you know, a real ongoing child in jeopardy situation, which would be horrible. horrible. Yeah, I mean, obviously this episode portrays or continues to portray from the previous season, every parent's nightmare, every president's nightmare, and in some ways the greatest possible security risk that the president's child is kidnapped in an effort to try to influence policy. And it does give Bartlett this impossible decision, which he solves by stepping out of the presidency. But, you know, I do think that there's an interesting question about whether or not that was the right thing to do, whether or not you can separate your incredibly strong emotional ties as a father to your duty to this job that no one else can possibly fill and that Bartlett uniquely fills and that I think, you know, over overhangs this. You know, anyone who read has read the book, the novel that came out a few years ago, Lincoln and the Bardo, great novel about Abraham Lincoln grieving the loss of his son 
and kind of what he went through as that process, you know, can kind of feel the pain that Bartlett feels here, and, and particularly with the sense that Zoe's death seems likely because of this decision that the acting president has made. And uh, I think it's just torturous to watch in the end of this where Josh and Donna walk out of the old executive office building and see the kind of the makeshift shrine that's been built there, people bringing teddy bears and candles and flowers and signs. I mean, essentially the music has no words. Josh and Don are oddly silent, but the signs have words. We love you, Zoe. We miss you, Zoe, so on and so forth. It's just very emotional and powerful. And it kind of goes back also to that decision Walken makes to strike. It's really interesting you think about that. If it had led to Zoe's death, you know, the Bartlett staff is all freaked out about the politics of Walken seeming presidential. But the flip side is, if the way this had played out is he had made a decision that had led to the death of the president's daughter, that would have been a very hard decision to explain to the American people. And chillingly, he, he says, I think we commented on before, we realize that Walken has written her off in his yes. mind, whatever he decides. She's, she's, she's already dead, basically, in dead. his mind. Yeah. He's good. He's good. <laughs> By the way, you answered, we took some questions from the audience. You just answered one of them. Can I say one thing just about John Goodman, who has always been one of my favorite actors on the planet? And it's just an interesting thing. He's just always been one of my favorite actors, and it was incredible. I was thrilled that he was coming in to work on the show, and it was astonishing. He's, he's one of those. He's kind of like Jimmy Smith's in that, like, he's contemptuous of his ability to act. Do you remember? Yeah. Wasn't there a day that he broke his hand when he punched a wall and we had to stop, it, it, like, like he'd, if he screwed up the line, he'd go, oh, God, you know, and Jimmy yeah, he was, was a force of nature. He was a force of nature, and I think we had to stop shooting because he got upset because he didn't think he was a good actor and, like, punched a wall. I know. We were all like, dude, it's working. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. It's good. I'm like, Josh has never hit a wall. I mean, you, <laughs> but I love John. He is a great casting choice. I love how he can sort of flip from genial to terrifying almost instantly. Yeah. He also, and he has a charm to him, even as he's saying lines of dialogue about the Arabs, like, you know, that are, are you would normally vilify this guy, and you do in your mind, but there's also, there's a swagger and a confidence and a, and a presidential air to him in, in crisis that you get. Can I just say, one for the government nerds and any government students in the audience here, you know, the weirdest thing I think about this episode is the shocking absence of lawyers. You know, (laughs) sure, I'm a lawyer, so I think that. But, you know, here you have this really unusual situation, acting president, his authority to order tax, and, like, no one's giving anyone any legal advice about who has power, what power they have, so on and so forth. And to go back to something we talked about earlier... You know, you have the acting president almost stumbling into forcing himself out of office because he threatens that he's going to nominate a vice president. And if you look at these statutes and how these things work, if he had actually nominated a vice president and that person had been confirmed, that person would actually then become president because that person would be the real vice president and Walken would have worked his way out of office for the person he picked. And, like, no one's giving anyone any legal advice in this episode (laughs) at all. Walken needs his will to walk in and say, some uh, competent, yeah, legal, you know, a a lot of legal authority here. Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen should be there, yeah, no question. No question. Fix it. I mean, maybe he was getting his legal Client advice. Client number from five. Michael, yeah, Michael Cohen. Maybe that, 
Maybe that is the problem here. Maybe Michael Cohen's like lurking in the shadows in this episode. All right. Since this is devolved, uh, let's go to some some of the questions that were submitted to us. More questions from the audience? All right. Here's a cute one. What character would Rishi play had he been cast in the show? That's from Lindsay. I love it. Um, I would play, I think, I don't know. This feel, it feels conceited to say this because I like him so much, but I, would, I feel like it would be Charlie. Charlie, I feel like, is the guy who's just, he's always going to be an outsider a little bit, but he's trying his best to help as much as possible. He's also going to sit in that chair like he does in this episode, and it doesn't matter that the president is telling him to go home or to help uh, with the new president. He's the ultimate loyal guy. I relate to that. I'd yeah. like to think Charlie. That's what I mean. I like him. So sweet. <laughs> Thanks for that question. That was, that was nice. A question for me. How would David Rosen survive in a Bartlett White House? <laughs> Interesting. Well, my feeling is I can answer this a few ways. One, I think if you watch Scandal, David needs constant sex. <laughs> and in seven seasons of The West Wing, no one ever had any. So I don't think he would do so well. But I do think, I think the Bartlett administration might bring out the best in him in the way that the various Grant administrations did not. I feel like David Rosen is so lacking in a sense of humor in a way that the staff of the, in the... <laughs> You're no Charlie. You're no Charlie. I was just gonna say, he would get, he would ne- they would never stop hazing David Rosen. Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> If you could pick one episode of The West Wing to show to Donald Trump, which would you choose? Literally anyone. (laughs) Just for him to get the basic idea how it works and uh, the loftier goals of the Bartlett administration. I would pick the last episode of season four with the title 25th Amendment. That would be my... uh, that would be my choice. But, I see. It's sort of a suggestion. Yeah. Just like, I you know, see. maybe 25. like a hint. Something it's always like that. there. It's, it's always a... there. It's always there. <laughs> Invoke it. Well, that wraps things up for us. Thank you so much to all of you here for coming out and listening to us ramble. Are you going to be okay? Are you really going to be okay <laughs> moving forward? But uh, We'll see. I have to say, I'm sorry, but I, like, I have to say I have not seen this. You know, I don't think I've ever seen it. And I was still taken with it. I was, scared to, I was scared to watch this. As was I. Well, to me, I wrote down at one point in my notes, it's still the West Wing. And I think it's not a knock at Aaron. It's a tribute to the universe that he created, to the characters that he imbued with their characteristics and their qualities, and to the skill of John Wells and a staff that continued in something that had been so indelibly created by Aaron and by Tommy. And the world has its own life and momentum. And I was delighted watching this episode to feel that it's still the West Wing. We were all freaked out. And that was, I remember, our realization at one point was that his vision was so strong in, in, in terms of how these people interacted, in terms of what the show was aiming for, in terms of the sort of heightened moral atmosphere of the show and I remember being able to feel maybe you'll get there not like I was betraying Aaron but that continuing even if I knew it was so personal to him and weird for him was actually you know kind of a tribute of what he had created which was incredible and and I know that for actors and dramatists 
the, the change in the, the writing and the structure of the show is really significant. But, you know, I'm lucky enough to teach here at Georgetown, and I can tell you that students now, long after the show ran, who weren't alive when the show was on, come into my classroom every year, inspired by the West Wing, inspired to public service by the West Wing. And the heart of that isn't just the wordplay and the things that Sorkin was so great at, but the idea of these characters, these men and women, dedicated to public service, flawed, but facing super hard decisions, but like going there every day, trying to do their best to make the country a better place. That's the heart of it for us more casual fans. And that heart still comes through powerfully. And it's what I think makes the show still so inspiring to young people long after it ran. I'm grateful that it's not a cynical show about politics because I think that's inaccurate. I mean, we were often in a cynical culture interpreted as a fantasy, you know, and I would always get defensive and go after the Sopranos and say, no, actually a hitman and therapy, that's a fantasy. <laughs> you know, six people surrounding someone trying to do the work of politics, you know, which is actively create the future, uh, happens all over the town. And we don't do well when, when we're completely cynical about it, as tempting as that can be. Well said. We'd like to thank our guests, Ronald Klain and Bradley Whitford. Thanks so much for joining thank us. Thank you. Today. The West Wing Weekly is a proud member of Radiotopia, a cavalcade of delightful <laughs> podcasts. If you want to listen to the others, you can find them at radiotopia.fm. Thanks so much to uh, Margaret Miller and Zach McNeese who make the show. Zach is here tonight. Zach's in the house. Zach. He came down. And thank you, Georgetown. Thanks, Georgetown. Boya Saxa. Hopefully you can help us now with our sign-off. That goes a little something like this. Okay. Okay. What's next? Thank you. Hey, if you're looking for a new podcast to listen to, why not try Love and Radio, also available through Radiotopia. If you're not familiar with the show, Love and Radio is the internet's premier location for complicated, thrilling, exquisitely produced, and challenging stories. Here now is a little taste of Love and Radio. I was writing prescriptions for myself for a controlled substance. What I don't like about liberalism is the nuance. We got in the van and she was not speaking to us at that point, which was kind of good because when we got gas, she didn't scream. I just have this weird compulsion to look up infection. I don't know if we can say this kind of stuff on the radio. I'm just fascinated with things that are... <laughs> what do you wish on your enemies? There was nothing I could do or say to change the slow motion crash. And I thought, I am standing in the breath of God. Love and Radio is an award-winning podcast. I mean, they've won so many awards. They've been featured on This American Life. It's one of the most interesting and beautiful, complicated podcasts around. If you want to learn more, go to radiotopia.fm or just search for Love and Radio wherever you download podcasts. Radiotopia. Big thanks to Adzerk for providing their ad-serving platform to Radiotopia.